Well, good morning. This is a morning that feels like it has some hard transitions in it as we go from Memorial Day to announcing new staff. And we've got one more to talk about. Um, thought about this a lot this week and never quite got me until I stand up here, but I want to pause before we continue to pray for the community of Uvalde, Texas. Can't imagine the fear, the pain, the hurt that that community has been through. Loss at the hands of evil. Loss of innocent life. And so this morning, before we continue on, we just want to lift up that community and those families in prayer as we, from a distance, love them through the power of the gospel. Would you pray with me? God, this makes no sense. Innocent kids. God, it leaves us with more questions than answers. It leaves us with hurt. It leaves us with anger. But Father, in obedience to your word that says we should mourn with those who mourn, we grieve the loss of these kids this week and their teachers. God, I pray that you would be with those families. There are no words to explain what they've lost. And so, Father, I ask that you would be with the moms and dads as they hug their children, as they search for answers. God, I pray for the local church in that community to come around them and to wrap their arms of love around them. God, I pray that you would strengthen those believers. God, that they would be able to sit in those places and listen to the hurt. To not offer trite answers, but to sit and to embrace and to love those people. God, I pray for those kids who ran in fear, who watched their classmates. God, I pray that you would heal them. God, the trauma they've experienced is not going to go away quickly. And yet we pray to the God who we believe has the power to work in their lives, to help them overcome that trauma, to help them overcome that pain. God, we thank you for the school staff and for their heroic acts of courage to do everything that they could. God, we pray for the family of the shooter. A family that needs you. That needs to know that you love us no matter what. that you're right there with them in the midst of the judgment and the pain and the condemnation that comes and you don't excuse the activity. But God, I pray they know they're not alone either. And God, as we think about that in our community, I pray for Great Oaks. 
I pray, Lord, that we would constantly be a church that is a place where those who are broken and hurting can find help, can find a place to heal. That, God, when people struggle, they wouldn't run away from here, but they'd run to here. And that, God, you would equip us to love them well to walk alongside of them, to be ministers to them. That's what your gospel calls us to do. And God, I pray we'd take that call seriously. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I don't know how old you were when you got your first job. And if you're joining us online, maybe you can type that in, how old you were and what your first job was. If you want, you can whisper to your neighbor who you're sitting next to here in the room and let us know what your first job was. But I was 11 when I started mowing other people's yards for money. I'd mowed my mom's yard for a little while. And you know, when you mow your parents' yard, you get a little bit of money because everything else gets taken care of for you. But I got to mow my neighbor's yard, and that was my first job. And I thought at 11 years old, I was rich. I was making $15 a week. I had zero expenses. This was like all of the G.I. Joe figures I could ever want were now at my disposal because I had all this money. But I learned three things quickly about mowing grass at 11 years old. And they're life lessons that have stuck with me for a while. The first thing I learned is that self-propelled mowers are good. When you are mowing grass in West Virginia where the hills go up and down, a self-propelled mower is a blessing. My mom's mower was just a standard push mower. And the neighbor's mower was self-propelled and it was great. What I also learned, though, is that self-propelled mowers that mulch are the best. Because the neighbor's yard was at the bottom of the hill, so all the water ran down. So even if it had been dry for like eight days, I was like elbow deep grabbing grass out of that little bag to try to get it out of the bagging mower. And finally, I figured out that I hate mowing grass. (laughs) So I had children. They can mow the grass now. But at 16, I didn't care if I ever mowed another yard again, but I had plenty of them to mow, and my mom would yell at me, and we would fight every week to get out the door to go mow the yard. I would whine. I would cry. I'd whine. I don't want to go do it. I'm tired. And she's like, if a friend called, you'd go out and play with them. That's because it's fun. It's not work. And I was convinced at 16 that work was a result of the fall. And that there was no way that this was a part of God's plan for his creation. There's no way a loving God could have this in store for us for the rest of my life. However, like most things I believed at 16, I was wrong. It's that whole frontal lobe not developed thing. I mean, I just couldn't quite get it. The truth is our work does matter to God. And there are many reasons that as a church, we need to be talking about work on a regular basis. But maybe two of the biggest one is sheer, the sheer number of hours we spend working and the number of opportunities that that provides us to live out and model the gospel for those we work with. Now, if you're curious, how many hours do we spend working? The average person in a lifetime will spend 90,000 hours working. 
90,000 hours. Now, I, I can get lost in a few stats. So uh, 90,000 hours comes down to 10.25 years. 10 and a quarter years. So if you're 10 in the audience today, I want you to know that the entire time you have been alive, your grandparents have spent working. That's crazy to me. But how do we put that in a little bit of perspective? So the average lifespan, 622,000 hours. All right, we're going to give you some hour things to think about. We sleep away 228,000 of that. I'm not sure who these average people are. I feel like my working hours and my sleeping hours are a lot closer than 90 to 228,000, but that's what the average is. I suppose there's those early years when you're not working or later years. We spend 3,600 hours laughing. That's good, right? We spend 4,320 hours on average exercising. This one is a little shocking. We spend 32,100 hours eating. Maybe this explains some of our problems. Eight times more eating than working out. I'm just saying they're just the facts. No shaming, just facts. We spend 42,300 42, hours with friends and family. This last one's one you can go home and talk about. We spend 2,800 hours on average making love. So you can go home and talk to your wife or your spouse or your husband and see, do you think we're ahead of the average or below the average? I'll let you guys figure that out on Sunday afternoon, how you're doing with that stat. Beyond the stats, how we spend these 90,000 hours really matters. I mean, if you think about it, if you think about it as it relates to our faith, you probably spend one to five hours a week doing church-related things. Maybe if you're like the superstar volunteer, you get 10 hours a week. And we spend 40 to 50 hours on Zoom calls, in cubicles, chasing after toddlers, volunteering in various communities, organizations. How is our faith affecting the way we think about work? About the way we spend the time at work, about the way we create relationships at work, as we walk through these next five weeks, those are some of the things we want you to begin to think about and begin to wrestle with. And the truth is, there's probably been at least one time or another where one where we've had a bad day. Anybody not had a bad day at work? All right, no hands went up. So we've all had a bad day at work, right? We've had that coworker we struggle with. We missed out on family events because we didn't prioritize things right. We struggle to keep work in the right place in our priorities. We've lost our cool. We've not treated somebody lovingly. We've allowed stress at work to be brought home and to hurt or affect those we love the most. That's not God's plan. It's not God's design. But the truth I want to unpack for you today is that we are designed for work. But the fall fractured our work. You see, my 16-year-old self was wrong. God did create us to work. And if that doesn't make sense to you, stick with me for a minute. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. I mean the very beginning. So if you've got your Bibles, you can pull them out. Open up to Genesis chapter 1. 
Or if you've got your phone, you can up the, open up the YouVersion Bible app to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Because if we want to figure out what life is supposed to be like, we have to go back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and to see what God designed and created life to be like. And today, I hope that as we look at this, these verses and these chapters, you'll begin to see that no matter where you are in the scale, whether you're a CEO, middle management, a janitor, a stay-at-home mom or dad, a retired volunteer, no matter what we do, our work matters to God and he designed us for it. So look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2, 1 and 2. Then God looked over all he'd made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. Work was always part of God's plan. It was always part of God's plan. And we work because we're created in the image of of a God who works. We see in these two passages, the God of the Bible is different than a Greek God or a Roman God who just sat and enjoyed and was lazy and enjoyed life and watched what happened. God's involved in that creation process. God is doing the work of that creation process and he finds enjoyment in the work that he does. See, God does not work out of force, but out of a place of joy and pleasure in creating. It's why at the end of every stanza in Genesis chapter 1, it says, God looked over his work and saw that it was good. Right? We all up for a little Hebrew lesson today? A little fun Hebrew? So the Hebrew word for good is tov, or tov, tomato, tomato. It's up to you. Tov, T-O-V. Say that with me. One, two, three. Tov. So at the end of every day, God looks at his creation and he says, it is Tov. But at the end of day six, God steps back from his entire creation and he doesn't say it's Tov. He says it's Tov Miod. It's very good. It's working in harmony with each other. Everything is working the way it's supposed to in perfect harmony. God says it's very good. That's the world God created. A world God worked to create. And in the midst of that, he says, but you, mankind, you're made in my image. Take a look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and on the earth, all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are created in the image and likeness of God. This means we're created to work and to enjoy the work we do. Even in a perfect world, Adam had work to do. And it was doing this work, in doing this work that Adam reflects the image of his creator back to him. 
The same should be true for us today. Our work should reveal to those around us the image of God. No matter what our work is, the quality with which we do it and the attitude is what shows those around us the character and nature of God. As work is one of the ways we are able as followers of Jesus to show the world the character of our Savior. It's through our work that we have the opportunity to show off the creativity that God has put inside of us. A distinct and a unique creativity to each and every one of us. But not only does our work reflect the image of God, it's what we were created to do. If you look through the creation account, nothing else in creation gets a job description. Nobody else has a job description, but we do. Take a look at Genesis 1:28. Then God blessed them and said, "Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the animals that scurry along the ground." Genesis 2:5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Genesis 2.15, then the Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Think about it. I am not a gardener. You do not want me to come to your house and help you with gardening. I will kill everything I touch. Me and Roundup, we work out really well together. Me and like plants you want to grow do not go well together. But you know if you just leave your garden, whether that's a flower garden or a vegetable garden, and you don't do anything to it, soon you won't see the plants. You'll just see the weeds. I I don't know why that's true. Why do plants die and weeds just just go. Somebody, probably somebody with more background understands this. I don't. I just know that I kill things. But it's in this work. God says, Adam, I need you to tend my garden. I need you to care for it. I need you to work it. See, the reality is that these verses show us God did his part in creating and he left us to work the land. He designed us for work. Our work is actually an act of stewardship. You see, we talk about stewardship all the time when it comes to money, but what about our working hours? God created you and I with different skill sets and different gifts, and he expects us to use those things to cultivate his creation. One of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, says this about work. Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, and prayer. It's not simply medicine, but food for our soul. If we're going to be all that God has created us to be, we have to work. It's what God knit us together to do. It's how God designed us. I think when we begin to look at work this way, we understand it's about much more than just making money or living the American dream or finding satisfaction. We begin to see work as a calling, as something we were designed to do. Again, Tim Keller says, a job is a vocation. 
Only if someone else calls you to do it and you do it for them rather than for yourself. And so our work can be a calling only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interest. How many of us, if we're honest, view our work as a mission of service to the others around us? Uh, Sometimes, right? It's just, I got to go to work, right? I need to provide for my family. My kids need food to eat. I got to go to work. I think there are some vocations. It's a little bit easier to see this as a service. But my guess is even in those vocations on the hard days, we lose sight of that every once in a while. We forget that this is about what we're called to do. But it's not just punching a clock. It's not just bringing home a paycheck. It's not just waiting for your spouse to get home so you can tag out and be like, you got the kids, I'm tired. It's a calling. What if we begin to see our work as an act of ministry to those around us? I will tell you, I didn't understand this until 2007. When I stepped out of my calling or out of church work. And I went to the coffee shop. And I literally thought, I'm going to go make lattes for people. They're going to drink coffee. This is going to be great. Nobody's going to talk to me. You don't make that much coffee in a day at a coffee shop. If you're ever curious, it's really a cleaning job. That's what it comes down to. You've got like two hours where you're busy enough to actually make a bunch of coffee. And then you're just cleaning the whole day. But what I realized in that is I had a chance to meet people where they are who would never step foot in here. The truth is, you have coworkers who you rub shoulders with every day who will never come here. And how are you sharing the gospel? How am I sharing the gospel with people like that. For me, it happened one morning making mocha. We're pouring the hot water into the nasty brownie powder that Starbucks uses to make their mocha sauce with. Most disgusting substance on earth. I'm just telling you, once you saw it made, you'd never drink another one. And I start talking to this girl. She starts telling me about how she used to go to church. She got really disenfranchised. Church had just not for her, too close-minded, too judgmental. I don't want anything to do with church. We just kept talking, just kept listening. I didn't have anything to say. At that point, I was in agreement with her. I'm like, I totally get it. I'm sick of church too. Let's just commiserate together. It'll be great. But as we made mocha morning after morning after morning after morning, a relationship began to form. And when I ended up going back to church, I said to her one Monday morning when I came back, I said, hey, you know what? I think I found a church that's different. You should come with me. You and your boyfriend should come. It'll be great. Three years later, I stood in their wedding. They joined our small group. 
she came back to the place she swore she'd never come back to. You see, when you and I view our work as an opportunity to minister, we begin to see our coworkers differently. We see the people who drive us nuts as created in the image of God, in need of a Savior to love them. We begin to see opportunity to live out our faith right next to them. So I don't care whether you're a janitor or a teacher, a stay-at-home dad, a businesswoman. You're called to serve and love the people around you through your work. And the amazing thing about this calling is only you can really do it. There's a good chance I'll never meet your coworkers. But you'll be there every day. There's a fantastic story about three stonemasons that I think kind of bridge this thing together. They're building Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's Cathedral in England. And these three men, these three visitors approach. And they ask the guys, so what are you doing? The first guy goes, I'm cutting stone. Just cutting stone. Second guy says, I'm making a living. Taking home a paycheck, making sure my kids and wife can eat. Third guy says, I'm building a cathedral for God and his people. There's a difference there. There's a difference in the way they view work. How do we view it? Maybe you're like me when I was 16 and you're like, oh, well, the work, I only have to do this because Adam and Eve ate that fruit in the garden, right? If it wasn't for the fall, I wouldn't have to work. This would be great. That's not true. Genesis 1 and 2 make it very clear that we were designed for work. But the trick is Genesis 3 makes a second half of that point I want to make today clear. We're designed for work, but the fall fractured our work. Forces us to deal with the tension we feel every day. That I know I'm supposed to love my coworker, but I don't. I know I'm supposed to have a good attitude when I go to work, but I don't. We were designed to do the things we do. But the fall broke that. Work's not what, it's cement, what, not what it's meant to be. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, you might be like, what's this fall thing you keep talking about? Genesis chapter three, right? God creates this utopian world. Everything is perfect. Adam and Eve are living in the garden. Everything's great. And they have one rule. Don't eat from that tree, right? Don't eat from that tree. That tree's a reminder of their need to trust and obey God and to live by his command because he's worthy of those things. But Adam and Eve don't listen. They do eat from that tree in Genesis chapter three. And when they do, everything is broken. Paul, the author of Romans eight says this, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of the future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised us. In these verses, Paul says everything's broken. Not just our relationship with God, but everything. When we put those verses next to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 19 that say this, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed. 
because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of its grains by the sweat of your brow, will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust and to dust you will return. You see, it's not just our lives that broke when Adam and Eve ate the tree, ate from the tree. They ate the fruit, not the tree. They ate from the, they ate the fruit. When they ate that fruit, everything broke. Creation broke, the earth groans. Our struggle, our work became a struggle and not a joy. We have thorns and thistles. Maybe gardening wouldn't be so bad if there weren't thorns and thistles. And we long to be released from this world. You see, work at its core is not bad, but as a result of the fall, it's broken. Adam and Eve's choice had catastrophic impact on the way we view work. Instead of working, because of who God created us to be, we work to prove to everybody else who we are. We tie our identity up in what we do, in how high up the corporate ladder we can climb, in how big our paycheck is. We see families torn apart by workaholics who just want one more thing. I just need to take that next step up and everything will be good. Then we'll have enough. We see it in our own lives when we achieve and we succeed and work here and we turn right around and realize we failed over there and we missed that deadline. We live in this place where work is broken. We don't have enough employees. We have too much work. We have difficult customers. I can tell you about them if you want. That's just for another time. I don't know about you, but I'm a huge fan of The Office. And Michael Scott and the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company show us time and time again just how broken work is. Michael's identity is 100% wrapped up in his role as regional manager of this paper company, stuck in middle management, but he is happy as he can be because he's found an identity there. Jim wastes his day away coming up with new ideas and creative ways to harass Dwight but not actually doing anything, he's just wasting time. Stanley and Phyllis have completely checked out. Stanley's only excited about pretzel day and Phyllis is really more worried in her knitting than in selling paper. And maybe the hardest one of all is Dwight, whose drive is so deep, he runs over people and fractures relationships to get that next step up. We can laugh at these guys and watch their antics, but the reason this show's become so popular is because it's so true to life. We know Michael Scott's. We know Jim's. We know Stanley's and Phyllis's. We know Dwight's. But church, as followers of Christ, we're called to something way beyond all of that in our work. It's because of God's goodness that we can still see good come from our work. We must appreciate that while we can, yet understanding it's only a shadow. You see, we were designed for work, but the fall fractured our work. The truth is, church, we don't live in Genesis 3 anymore. We live after Jesus has come, after Jesus has lived, he's died, he rose again. 
and his resurrection began a restoration. A restoration of our relationship with God and a restoration of our view of work. You see, because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it's restored our ability to love our coworkers and to see the best in them. It's restored our ability to see ministry or to see work as an act of ministry. And it's actually restored our ability to occasionally see joy in our work. The cross is about a lot more than just our relationship with God. It's about what it means to bring God's kingdom in this place, a shadow of what it will one day be. But a restoring of what things were like in Genesis 1 and 2. And when Jesus returns, it'll all be perfect. But as his followers, his death and resurrection give us hope that one day our work will be fully restored to the way it was. And we'll have the opportunity to love work and each other the way we were intended to be. Can I get an amen? As we close up our time this morning, if you are a reader and you're like, hey, I'd like to read a little bit about work, two great books. One that has shaped a lot of my thinking, Tim Keller's Every Good Endeavor. Pretty much if Tim Keller writes it, it's on my book list. I'm just gonna, no shame. I'm his biggest fan, I think. And another one called Work Matters uh, by Tom Nelson. So these are two books that are shaping my view of work and will be forming our sermon series. So if you wanna read along, grab one of those. You can come grab them off the stool if you have questions. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have created us to work. Put that desire inside of us, given us gifts and talents to carry out into our community. God, we ask your forgiveness for times when we haven't seen work as what it's meant to be. When we see it as just the drudgery we have to get through to enjoy the weekend. God, I pray that you would help us as followers of you to see our work as an opportunity to minister to those around us, as an opportunity to show your glory and your character and your nature to those who need to know you. And God, I pray that we would take our 40 to 50, 60 hours a week that we spend at work, and God, we would use every one of those for your glory. Not so that we can get promoted, not so that we look good, but that so people who need to know there is a God who loves them will see that. God, forgive us when we fall short. We are so thankful for your grace and mercy in that. God, thank you for Jesus who restores all things. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. At this time, we're going to celebrate communion. So if you did not grab a communion cup on your way in, if you'll just throw your hand up in the air, the ushers will get it to you. If you're worried, all of our communion is gluten-free, so everyone should be able to participate. They are tricky, so start opening them now. And at Great Oaks, we do say, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to join us in communion today. When Jesus gathered his disciples around the table, preparing for his death, 
that would restore all things that are broken. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. And he handed it to each of them and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after dinner, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Each time you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's stand and worship.